open to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy is a short letter um, in the, the New Testament. So if you see Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, just go a little bit further. If you see Hebrews, go back to the left. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you're having a smartphone, it's easier for you. You can just type it in. So Timothy, um, we, we tend to just kind of preach um, week in and week out through books of Scripture. We start, and so we've been in 1 Timothy now for several weeks, and we'll be finishing this morning. Um, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul towards the very end of his life and ministry in the early 60s, um, after his first imprisonment in Rome. And he's writing to a younger minister, um, not his son, but someone who would have been like a son to him, Timothy, who is currently in the city of Ephesus. And Paul is writing him, hoping to come, hoping to show up there, but wanting Timothy to begin to set some things in motion. We're, we're nearing the end of the age where the apostles, those who walked with Jesus, um, are, are dying off, um, are being murdered. There are not many left. And so the church is being established as the, as the stronghold of faith and of truth. And they're, they're needing to be rooted and grounded. And so Paul is handing off responsibility to Timothy. And, and there's been some false teachers that have arisen in Ephesus. And so he's directing Timothy and how to interact with them. And ultimately, the thrust of this entire letter has been this. That the church is supposed to be like this buttress, this stronghold of truth. And out of it, it because it will be ordered and set up because God is... The head of the household, he's setting the church up with some specific structures and organization so that mission can go forth. That it's a base of operation for mission to go forth. And the point of the mission is that we would be reflecting God's character rightly. So we are worshiping him and that we're drawing others into knowing Jesus and of worshiping. Because ultimately what we will do for eternity is make much of Jesus. Mission will one day cease. But in the moment, as we live in this broken world, in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, that we are to make much of him, rightly reflecting his image, and drawing others into worship and knowledge and faith. And if the church is disjointed, if there's back um, infighting, if there's backbiting, if there's, if there's struggle, then mission begins to cease, and so worship begins to stop, and God is worthy of all worship, and of more worshipers. And so the church should be set up and organized in a manner that allows this to happen freely and easily. And so we're going to pick up and read the last section of 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life in all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in approachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you all. So this letter is, is interesting in that it's, it's both a private letter from Paul to Timothy and it's also a public letter. He ends it that this grace be not just with you, Timothy, but with y'all. That this letter was meant to be read publicly as well. And so I want you to imagine a scene where if you've got multiple children or if you're a teacher or you've been in a setting like this where you're having to deal with students. And there are times where you may, there's a behavior that you want to commend. And so it's a private matter between you and your child or you and a student. But instead of taking them aside or writing them a note or thanking them afterwards, you make a point to commend them in front of the rest of the class or a number of students or the rest of your children. And the point is, hey, you and I are having a conversation, but I really want you all to hear this. I really want you to see that I'm commending this specific behavior. So those of you who I'm not talking to at the moment, are you hearing what I'm saying? Because I want you to do this too. That's a little bit of what's going on here at the end of 1 Timothy. That Paul is writing to Timothy specifically, privately, right? Personally. But he's also saying, church, I've got some things that as I write them to Timothy, I want you to hear them. And I want you to know them. And I want to commend some things in Timothy. And I want you to see some things that I'm I'm going to say are not healthy and not right. So it's not just Timothy having to correct and to teach But you're hearing my um, authority over it, saying, look at Timothy and look at these and and compare them and contrast them as to what the right intent for the church is. And so ultimately what Paul is doing is he's going to take the false teachers who have emerged in the church in Ephesus and Timothy, and he's going to do some comparison and some contrast. And the first he's going to do is he's going to talk about their actual belief. Look at verse 3. So he says, look, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And so immediately what he's saying is, look, if someone doesn't believe the word of God is sufficient, if it's not enough, if they're looking to detract from it, if they're looking to add to it, this is going to like be a marker of a false teacher. And so we saw in chapter 1 that the false teachers, were they wanted to focus on the minutia of the law. 
right? And, and they're looking to talk about these genealogies and these endless like quarrels over words and situations. He's like, look, if, if you're doing something that's not leading to fruitful discussion, right? That's, that's the marker of a false teacher. If you're doing something that wants to detract from the word of God or is looking to add to it, you're dealing with a false teacher because they're saying the word of God isn't sufficient. He continues in verse 5, right? Because they are depraved in mind and they are deprived of the truth. And then in verse 20, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And so they're claiming they may have some truth mixed in. He's like, but then they're, they're changing it and they're twisting it and they're calling it, right, like it's a greater knowledge, a greater understanding. And he's like, these folks, their belief is not in the word. In chapter 4, we saw that they were denying creation. Not that the world was created, but they were denying that creation was good. Right? And so they're saying, hey, we've got to avoid certain foods. And, and yet God has told us that what he's created is good. And they're saying we need to deny marital relationships, in sexual relationships, he's saying, right? But he's saying, look, God has given us the gift of marriage. So don't call what God has given us in food and in relationships evil, right? They're taking some truth, they're going to Scripture, and then they're changing it to meet their standards. And he's like, these are those that you want to recognize that their beliefs are false and that what they're teaching is false. And so he's contrasting that now with Timothy, verse 3. He's saying, so Timothy, teach the sound works, words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness. It's like you don't need to wander off into other things. We have what we need. The word of God has been given. It has been his revealed will, his revealed teaching. It is all that we need. Look at verse 20 as well. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Right, that we see this handing off that as Jesus walked with the disciples, he tells them at the end of his ministry, the end of his life, before he ascends back to heaven, look, I want you to go into the world teaching people the things that I've taught you, baptizing them, making disciples of them. In Acts 1, as, as he's ascending into heaven, the disciples are standing there and they say, hey, Jesus, how long do we need to do this? And he says, until you see me again. Right? We see even now in 1 Timothy 6, Right? To keep the, in verse 14, keep the commandment unstained and free from approach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're now about a generation past Jesus' ascension. The apostles are beginning to, to, to be removed from the scene. And so those who had intimately walked with Jesus are being told, now you've got to entrust this deposit to churches, to believers, to the local elders to pass on. So they're saying, Timothy, we can't wander from this truth. We have the words of Scripture. Guard it. This deposit that's been given to you and pass it on to others who will then pass it on, who will then pass it on. That we would know that if you wander from this, if you deviate from it, right, that you are a false teacher looking to, to distract, potentially to condemn. Church, we are recipients of the deposit that Timothy guarded and that other faithful men and women have guarded for some 2,000 years now. That we're being asked now to guard it and to pass it on to our children and to our community and to the world around us. The truth that we would say the word of God is sufficient on its own. It does not need our wisdom to adapt it, to change it. And that we are to pass on what God has given us. So, 
how do we know? If, if, if other than knowing the word, how do we know if someone is a false teacher or if they're teaching the sound words of Jesus? And so what Paul is going to tell Timothy is this. Their behavior and the fruit of their behavior will, will, will reveal this. Look at verse 4. So the false teacher is puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Listen, which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among the people. So what Timothy has been receiving from Paul is this, that is the church is meant to be a family. Right? He's talked about taking care of the, the widows in the church. He's talked about um, slavery and seeing people as brothers, right? Not master and slave, but as, as equal and as brothers. He's talked about making sure that we're taking care of, of those in our community. That we're to be a family, living out the one another's that Scripture has called us to. And he says the false teachers, that's not what they're doing. They're not drawing us into unity. They're not drawing us into to family relationship. They're creating groups and they're dividing factions. And the things that they're doing are not making things easy for truth and mission and worship to go out. They're making it harder. Because there's envy. Envy is the incessant craving for someone else's stuff. And this could be their gifts. It could be their, their relationships. It could be their, their actual consumable things. But it's this just incessant craving of, i got to have what they have. And because we typically we know enough to know that we shouldn't voice that, it just begins to create like hatred in our hearts. right? Which means we begin to treat them differently. We begin to provoke things, and it breaks relationship. It causes dissension and strife, which he lists. It, it causes slander where we begin to have verbal attacks on others. Where we begin to have abusive speech. Where we then begin to have evil suspicions, right? We don't assume the best. And something we say here at Redeemer all the time is we've got to assume the best about one another. Assume that you're not looking to offend, that something was misunderstood. But if there are evil suspicions, it's that you're assuming the worst. Oh, you meant to say that, right? You think you're better than me, right? He says, like, look, if, if you're creating envy and strife and slander, the natural outpouring now is going to be evil suspicions, that you assume the worst and you're undermining trust. And if these four things are happening, there's going to be constant friction. It's a very apt description of what's going on. That there's just always heads being butted, relationships being broken. It's the, it's the natural outflow. So he says, look, the false teachers are going to look to take a little bit of truth. And then they're going to look to change it. And what's going to come out of that is toxic teaching. Toxic relationships, which will thwart mission and worship, which is what the church is intended for. It's like, that's what's going to happen. But instead, Timothy, godliness, in verse 6, with contentment, is great gain. Now, we've already defined godliness, as Paul has written to Timothy, as this. That it's where the knowledge we have of Scripture and of God and our behavior intersects. Right? When we have the right belief and the right action where they intersect, that is godliness. That's how we spend our money and that's how we relate to widows and that's how we interact with leaders and that's how we go on mission and that's how we live in a world that's pagan and yet we have hope. Is that it's the intersection of our behavior with our right belief. And so he's already said, I want you to be unified and to be family. 
to be on mission, to make much of Jesus. She says, look, if, if those are the things that are being produced as people are teaching, then you know it's from the word of God. But if strife and dissension and quarrels are what's being taught, it's not. Right? Is it godliness or is it division? The false teachers, he's going to have one last kind of shot at them here. Look at verse 5. They imagine the end of verse 5, that godliness is a means of gain. Here's what they mean by that. They've seen that they can teach or be involved in religious activity, and it's a way to make money. Now look, Paul has told us he's not opposed to to church leaders being paid. We saw that in chapter 5. He wants them to be not just paid, but to be taken care of. But he says now what you have is false teachers who realize they have a gift, uh, maybe in speaking, or they have some people following them, and they realize, I can make some money doing this. I I, I can gain what I really want, which is power, which is influence, which which is financial security, and God is simply the means in which I'm going to do it. And so I'll, I'll call myself a pastor. I'll call myself a teacher. And it's going to be the gains to what I really want. And it's not about faithfulness to the text at all. It's not about serving God's people. It's not about mission. It's not about worship. But it's about their own personal gain. And so again, he contrasts what they're doing in verse 6 with Timothy. He says, Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And so here's what he's saying. Godliness does have gain. But it's not the financial gain that the false teachers think it is. It's security. It's peace. It's stability. It's contentment. He's he's saying there is this tremendous spiritual benefit. It's just not going to be financial. But then he wants to deal, because he's, remember, this church is full of folks who are poor, folks who are middle class, folks who are rich. And he, he now talks about this specific, practical, financial issue most of the rest of the chapter now. So let's begin in verse 6 with the poor. So he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And so he's writing now to the lower... lower um, economic strata here. And he's saying, look, if you have food and if you have shelter, if you have clothing, because this word clothing is kind of a a protection, a shelter clothing situation, he's saying, then you've got what you need. What he's not saying is, look, if you're destitute, you should just be okay with it. But he's saying that what we need are some basic things. We need food and we need clothing and we need shelter. And if we have this simple, these simple things... That we have the minimum of what we need. For we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of it. So let's go ahead and define contentment as we move forward. Contentment is trusting God's, God's wise distribution of resources. So what we know this morning is this, is God has not distributed his resources equally across the room. He has not distributed them equally across the globe. So do we trust the way he's distributed them? Because if not, I begin to want what you have. And I think God's made a mistake. 
right? So contentment is that we trust that we have what God has given us and that he was wise and is a good father when he does it. And that means we trust him when it's in much and we trust him when it's in little, when it's in lack. Right? Paul has, has shown us this in Philippians. He says, look, when I've had more than I needed, Jesus was enough. I wasn't tempted by that. When I had not barely enough, Jesus was sufficient. He was enough. That it wasn't his circumstances that changed his contentment. It was Jesus who made his contentment rock solid while his circumstances of life changed from much to little, from freedom to imprisonment, from shipwrecks to beatings to church planning. That Jesus was the constant. He was content in that. Look, basic needs need to be met, right? There's a human, like, just value and worth that if, if people are living destitute, that there's a, they need to be brought up to having their basic needs met. But we live in a culture that tells us we always need more, right? And we need to understand that we are almost inoculated against contentment, right? That, that, that we are in a consumer-driven culture that's going to say, you need more, You don't have what they have. You need more. You need to spend more. You need to have more. You need to get more. And so we assume that we're in this kind of, most of us go, I'm I'm on the poorer side, not on the richer side. And yet we have more than almost anyone in human history. Pastor Spurgeon would say this, that a Christian, stay stay with this, he says, should be the, the least satisfied with the world. And the most satisfied in the world. Right? He's saying that we should not be satisfied with the things the world has to offer. Power, influence, relationships, money, consumer items. He's like, we're not satisfied with those things. Because we're satisfied with something holy and right and in Jesus. He's like, but then we're the most satisfied and the most content in the world. And as, as you look around, most people are not satisfied and they are not content. And they, and they show it because they're always striving for more. They always need more. Things don't satisfy. They, no one ever goes, I think I have enough. Right? There's something innate in us that goes, I need just a little more. Well, you had more than you did. Well, now I need more than that. And he's saying, so a Christian is actually satisfied and content in this world. They're just not satisfied with the things of this world. The very first sin, of, as we think of Adam and Eve, was a lack of contentment. That they believed there was something that God was holding out from them. That if they could circumvent him, that they would get something that would more satisfy them than God. And if we're honest, we understand that that is the sin of our heart as well. That we think there's something that we can do, we can circumvent God to get what we really want. And so we're willing to, right, to do things financially. Or we're willing to do things in relationships to circumvent because we don't trust God's wise distribution of resources. And money just lies to us. It tells us if you don't have X amount, that you can't have real influence, that you can't have real life, that you don't have real value, that without it, that you're nothing. So the false teachers are attempting to use God to gain what they really want, right? Power, influence, security, money. What they really treasure. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is this. What we really treasure is Jesus. What will really satisfy us is Jesus. And what we're really going to be content with is Jesus. 
and that our basic needs will be met. Food, clothing, shelter. He then jumps in verse 17 to talking to the wealthy in the church. Listen to what he says. So as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, which haughty is proud, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So now here's what I want you to be reminded. This letter is being read to the church. And so he's just addressed the poor who are sitting in the church with the wealthy who are now being addressed. And what Paul does not say is this. Hey, even it up. If you don't have as much, take it from the rich. Right? He does not say that. But he's calling them family. And he's already said, look, we're going to take care of the widows. We're going to take care of our leaders. We're going to, we're going to be generous people. But he's not calling them to get rid of everything that they have. He's not telling the poor, work harder so you can be rich. And he's not telling the rich, give it all away. But he's calling them into relationship. And he's calling them all to contentment in Christ. He's telling them, right? And we need to be reminded that this morning, most of us fit more in the rich category than the poor category in relation to the rest of the world and to the rest of history. Now, maybe not relative to those in the room, maybe not relative to those in our community or in America, but in general, we are more likely this than we are the poor. Okay? So let's just be frank about that. And Paul has already wrote Timothy and said, deception is possible. Right? So we need to think about how Scripture talks about money. And what it tells us is that we need to be on guard. Right? Because, right, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter heaven. It's easier, right, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. doesn't say it's impossible, but he says, be on guard. It's difficult. We, we have in Luke 12, this, the parable of the, the rich businessman who's laying there one day looking at all he's got. And he's like, tear down the barns. Let's build bigger ones. Fool. Because tonight you'll die and someone else will enjoy it. Right? It's a warning, not of having it, but of thinking it's all mine. And then I just want to like, I want to be known, right, for my bigger barns, my, my greater luxury, that I have these things. And the third is this, is in, in Mark 8, right, he says, don't be the one who gains the whole world and loses your soul. Now, in, in no regard does Scripture say money itself, which is just paper and metal, is evil. But it says you need to be on guard because it's dangerous. It's a hazardous thing. And it's hazardous for us spiritually. So he tells the rich, don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but set it on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's saying this, do you want to be rich now or do you want to be rich forever? Because if we focus on this life, the 60, the 70, the 80, the 90 years that we get, it's like you can be rich and prideful and arrogant and assume you're better than everyone else and it was on your back and your effort and your smarts and your clever. He's like, or you can be rich for eternity. And how are we rich in eternity? 
that we would be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so he's writing to the rich and saying, what you have isn't truly life, but it's the way that you reflect the generosity of God that is life. It's the way that you serve one another. That is truly life. It is it's trusting that God is your provider, not your business or your wisdom or your financial acumen or your shrewdness in investing. He's telling us the way that we spend our money or the way that we think about our lack of money reveals what we hope in. And it reveals what we find security in. Do you go to bed at night going, I'm okay because I have X amount of money in the bank? Do you go to sleep thinking, I would feel okay if I got to X amount of money in the bank? If you're on the poor side or on the wealthy side. He says, no, 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 our security is in Jesus. The author and the perfecter of our faith. Our hope is in him, not in things that can be taken from us. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 5 this, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? He says, look, you will not be satisfied with it. A little more will not be sufficient. But we are to learn contentment. Listen, and more may come. But we're not contented by that. We're contented by Jesus, whether we have much or we have lack. Because the risk for the wealthy here is this, that they would forget God. That he is their provider. That he is their security. That he is their hope. But as we think about the thrust of Timothy's letter here, the other risk is this, is that we would forget our neighbor. That we would think that we are better. That their money is what gives us value. And because you don't have as much, I'm better than you. Or you should just work harder or try harder or do more. And he's saying, look, if we're to be a family, then we're to care for one another. And the money is not what separates us. That we are, we are equal in Christ. We have equal value. And so we are to be content, ready to be rich in good works, to be generous, and ready to share, not with false security. In church, we need to be reminded this morning that we are probably more numb to this than we care to believe. So here's where we're going to, to finish up this morning. Is this, is how do we fight for contentment? How do we fight for it? So we go back to verse 11 and 12. But as for you, O man of God, he's writing to Timothy, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Listen, before we make this all about money, we can have a lack of contentment in a lot of areas. We can have a lack of contentment in relationships. God, if you would only give me this relationship, then I'll be content. And what we're saying is I don't trust your distribution of resources, God. We can, we can lack contentment in our status. I need to be known a certain way. In approval, in health. God, if you would only give me better health, then I would give you praise and glory. In lack of money, in lack of power. And the question is this, is who do we trust? Do we trust the giver of good gifts? 
and his wisdom in it. And we thank God you've messed up in this regard. And so give me what I really want. And now you, we are like the false teacher saying, God, I want to use you to get what I really need. What would really satisfy and what would really give me contentment. Because you won't. And you can't. So how do we fight for contentment? Look what he tells Timothy. Flee. Right? Flee from things that would rob you of this. Flee from the love of money. Which is the root of all evil. What what the Greek ruler says. The root of all evil. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves as many pangs. He's saying, look, when you strive after that, which will not make you content, know that your faith is at risk and your belief is at risk. And you may swerve and wander away from the faith completely because you're saying God is not sufficient. He won't make me content. He won't satisfy me. So he's saying, flee, get away from it. Fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. Pursue. Right? These words, I hope what you hear here is effort. That we don't just drift into godliness. That there are things we actively have to leave and to fight against and to remove and to not be a part of anymore. And there are other things that we have to actively pursue and to give effort and fight for. Like being in the word of God. Being around brothers and sisters in Christ who will point us to the promises and the truth of scripture. To fight to trust and believe. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. As he writes Timothy one last time, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Listen, I've kept the faith. And so the fight is to keep believing, is to keep trusting, is to keep adhering to the promises and saying, these are enough, these are sufficient. And we do this together. Because there will be moments where you are tempted to think that there is something better than God. God, if you just give it to me, I just need this. And so, God, you're not good if you won't do it. And we need our brothers and sisters around us pointing, lifting our chin when we can't lift it. Saying, no, no, Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. This is a temporary time. And he satisfies our souls in a way that money never can, that relationships never can, that power never can, that approval never can, that status never can. Because sometimes we're weak. More often than not, we're weak and we need one another. That is the thrust of Hebrews, is are we going to get to the promised land together? And that's why we're going to Hebrews next. We'll begin Hebrews next week. Because it's a fight to trust And to believe. So the question this morning. Do you treasure God? Or this morning are you actively using him to get what you really treasure? God is our wealth. He is our riches. And this is why Paul includes this hymn. So I charge you in the presence of God in verse 13. In verse 14. And then he says this. Um. In verse 15, the hymn, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light with whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He just holds God up and he says he is more than you think he is. He is bigger than you think he is. And he will satisfy you in ways that you cannot begin to imagine. Look at him. Look at him. 
Lift your chin from these temporal things that will pass away and look at him and see he's enough. He is sufficient. And he is better than what this world has to offer. And so then the church is able to look at the poor and say, be content. You have wealth and riches in Jesus and you will have them for all eternity. And he can look at the the wealthy and say, you be generous. You reflect the generosity of God who left heaven and has made us rich in Christ. Who has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Jesus has done that. And so you want to say you're his, you reflect that in the way that you freely give and do good. Reflect his generosity. In church, will we be reminded of this? That riches may or may not, and most often in the New Testament, are not a blessing from God. They can be, but they're not necessarily. Do not assume wealth is blessing. It is a danger. It's a hazard to be aware of, to know that there is risk involved. But contentment is always a blessing from God. Whether you have much or little. It's why he doesn't give us percentages here or standards here. Because it's an attitude of the heart. And so if we treasure Jesus appropriately, appropriately, whether we have little or much, we will be on mission. And we'll make much of him because he is our contentment and he is our satisfaction. Church, it doesn't just happen. We have to do it together and we have to be active in pursuing the fight of faith, of trusting, and of believing. So this morning, the band is going to come back up and we're going to enter a time of worship where we will sing to our King that we pray that you treasure. And you may need to repent this morning that there are things that you're trying to use God for. There are things that you currently treasure Him more than. Maybe for the first time He's opening your eyes to say, I am better than you think I am. I am more than you think I am. Trust me. Find your satisfaction in me. There will be some men and women in the back of the room if you need someone to talk to or pray with. The Lord's Supper is also out. And as the band comes up, we're just going to reflect and we're going to sing to our King. There will be three songs. And at any point during those songs, if you are a follower of Jesus, the table is for you because you are rich in God this morning. Because Jesus' blood was spilt and not yours. And His body was broken and not yours. He has satisfied the wrath of God and has brought us in as sons and daughters of the king. And so Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Church this morning you are rich if you know Jesus. And we know him by the cross which gives us hope and security that wealth can never do. So you sing to your king, you repent if necessary, you let him minister to you through his spirit, you talk to someone, pray with someone, you take the Lord's Supper. All right, let's respond as the spirit is leading this morning. Jesus, we desperately need you. Lord, contentment is not a thing of this world. Satisfaction is not a thing of this world. And yet you give it. And so would we be the most contented in this world that doesn't find satisfaction because we have found treasure in Christ. Would you open eyes and hearts and minds to those in the room right now who have never treasured you like that, that they would see that there is hope. Father, for those of us who are struggling right now to believe that you are good, 
God, would you remind us that you are? And Father, would we continue to fight the good fight of faith together, making sure no one is left in our pursuit of eternity?